Let me add my welcome to Ben's welcome from earlier in the service as we gather this morning in the name of Christ, who is our bond and our hope. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning, and we do give thanks to our God that His Holy Spirit can knit us together whatever our circumstances. I was struck again this week by the realization that the Lord has been meeting believers in all kinds of difficult circumstances over the centuries, in plague and in persecution. What we are experiencing in this COVID season, other believers have had to face similar difficulties except without the prospect of relief. And they are still to this day. This morning, millions of Christians are worshiping under less than ideal circumstances. Let me invite you, when you are inclined to bemoan our current limitations, let me invite you to allow that complaint to spur you to pray for our friends, known and unknown, in other places who daily are facing the threat of arrest and persecution, who are being forced from their homes because they dare to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about our Chinese brothers and sisters who are living under a fresh wave of persecution. Think about that isolated Muslim believer who has met Christ in a dream and who is wondering if God will send someone to help him. Think about our brothers and sisters in Congo who for generations now have lived with lawlessness and exploitation and the plague. So let's pray for them even as we pray for an end to this virus. Our text this morning is from the very first part of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Listen to God's word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This too is the word of the Lord. And together we say thanks be to God. You know, I can imagine that for many moderns, and probably some of us in the room this morning via remote access, that we hear a text like this one with its instructions to slaves And we find here one more reason to close the Bible. To say, this is why I don't read the letters of Paul. 
or even defiantly to see Christianity as the enemy of enlightened people everywhere. But I want to challenge that conclusion this morning. In fact, this morning, I want to suggest something even more dramatic. And here it is, right from the top. Everything we believe about the value of people, about the meaning of persons and their inherent worth, it is birthed in the Christian vision of the human being. And this text... This text where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, and children, obey your parents, and slaves, obey your masters. This text actually wants us to see that as long as you read the rest of the text as well. And if you can see Paul's instruction in the context of his moment and not demand that he live in ours. Believe me, I am not saying that the church has always been faithful to the vision that has been given to us. This text, among others, has been misused to legitimate the worst treatment of women, of children, and to rationalize the chattel slavery of our own history to our abiding shame. And I am certain that if Paul had been present in these moments, when we have misinterpreted and misapplied these texts, he would have protested saying, you're getting it all wrong. You're misreading what I wrote. Those of us who are in the habit of speaking in public have this experience all the time, teachers, preachers, and others. You know, I just want to remind you that we used to meet in church together in something called a sanctuary where people sat together And they sang together and they talked together. And at the end of our worship, many folks would walk out the front door and shake the preacher's hand. Now, not everybody did this. Uh, Some of you had to go get your kids out of nursery. Others of you tried to slide around behind me or you went out another one of the doors. You know who you are. But many would walk out the front door and often comment on something that I had said. And sometimes it would go like this. Pastor, I am so glad that you said such and such. And then he or she would repeat exactly the opposite of what I had been trying to say. And I would want to exclaim, but that's not what I meant. It's no wonder that Paul thought preaching was a foolish enterprise. But let me see if I can set Paul's words here in Ephesians in their proper and I would say earth-shattering context. The radical proposal actually begins back in chapter 5 when Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. That should have been a hint to us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Both phrases, submit to one another, and out of reference to Christ, are nothing less than revolutionary. Paul then goes on in what might have sounded familiar to Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles had what we've come to call household codes. And perhaps Paul's Ephesian audience would have 
started to doze off a little bit during this sermon letter, thinking that they knew pretty well what was coming. How wrong they would have been. And here's why. If you had been a woman or a child or a slave, you would have noticed three things as you heard this letter read. First, you would be surprised to have been mentioned at all. You were a non-entity in the ancient world. The structure of the universe was set and you did not matter one bit. You were instrumental. You were tools to be used or not, treated well or not, a convenience or a problem to be dispensed with. The second thing you would have noticed is that you would be surprised that you were mentioned first in each case. And that would have struck you as odd. Maybe if you had been dozing, you might have had your ears perked up a little bit. You would have gotten curious. Well, this is unusual. And then thirdly, you would not have been surprised by anything that Paul said about you at first. Wives submit. No news there. Children, slaves, obey. Same thing. No news here. What's different about that? But then you would notice the reason. Something in each case modifies Paul's instruction. Something about Jesus Christ. Paul had said as an introduction to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now he is applying that exhortation to every group, each group specifically. Wives, submit as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Slaves, obey as you would Christ. In each case, submission and obedience are transformed from the cultural norms in which you are not even a full-fledged human being and subject to a permanent authoritarian structure with no hope of relief to a structure that is named and shaped by the crucified and resurrected Lord of love who was incarnate as one of us humans sent to us out of love to call all of us into new life, new creation, a return to an original vision of loving, sacrificial service to God and to one another. Jesus Christ gives us a new vision of authority, an authority rooted in loving concern as a concerned parent exercises loving authority over a child who does not yet understand danger or understand the benefits of discipline or the joys of an unselfish sacrifice for the good of someone else. That's a very different kind of authority that Paul has in mind here, different from the givens of the ancient world. And this for another time, different also from our own modern conceptions 
of autonomy and freedom. But if you were a woman or a child or a slave, you would have been gobsmacked by what Paul said to husbands and to the patriarchs and to the slave masters. This is truly revolutionary. It had never been offered before for a husband to be told to give himself up for his wife as Christ gave himself up for the church, for patriarchs who had the power of life and death over their children to be told that they are not to be tyrants, but that they are to love their children, not provoke them, to set for them a godly example that is determined by the self-giving love of Jesus Christ. And masters, masters told to treat their slaves as if they were not slaves, knowing that there is accountability for masters to the master, the Lord of all. And Paul says, I think with very pointed intent, we know that there is no partiality with him. This is extraordinary. I cannot stress this enough, how revolutionary this must have sounded. No wonder Paul wrote this. He might not have gotten out of that room alive if he had delivered this in person. I want you to stop complaining about Paul. And instead, I want you to marvel at what is happening here. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, in his little commentary, his commentary for every person, says that, quote, Paul could no more envisage a world without slavery than we can envisage a world without electricity. Most of what the modern world takes for granted are impossible without electricity. And in the same way, the way Paul's world worked was through slaves taking a vital place in almost every household. And remember, There was no such thing as a democracy in Paul's world. There was no hope of changing institutions through elections and the transfer of power. And just in case you were inclined in those days to suggest revolt, the roads were lined with crucified bodies of runaway slaves and would-be insurrectionists. That's Paul's world. That's Paul's world in which he is trying to articulate the profound difference that Jesus Christ makes. Here he is, reimagining the world through the reality of Christ, in the way that his presence changes even the most fundamental relationships of daily life and home and work. He saw through the cultural norms of his own time. He managed to understand the difficulties of those norms, the sinfulness of those norms. I think he could do so because in his encounter with Jesus Christ, he had come to call into question the norms that he himself had taken for granted, assuming that Gentiles were dogs and only Jews were truly human. He came to see the world through the lens of a forgiven sinner instead of one who had been given a grand education and who was smarter than everybody else. He saw through the cultural norms of his times, 
and he understood the dramatic implications of the gospel. He suffered because he dared to say that Gentiles and Jews were alike made in the image of God, all in need of forgiveness. His own autobiography led the way in his cultural critique. Based on the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, Paul understood that everything had changed. And the obvious place to start was in the home and in the relationships between men and women and children who had met this Jesus Christ in the church. To quote a bumper sticker, Paul subverted the dominant paradigm, but he did it not from the outside in, but from the inside out. How did it work out? Well, we have examples in our own scriptures of this vision being played out in particular lives and contexts. It is very possible that Luke, the gospel writer, had been a former slave owned by a man named Theophilus to whom he addresses his gospel writing. Theophilus had perhaps set him free. And of course, we have the remarkable letter from Paul to Philemon, a case study in the revolutionary ethics of the kingdom of God. Do you remember that story? Philemon owned a slave named Onesimus. It was a pun of a name because Onesimus means useful. Was he named that because he was actually not useful? Or was it an accolade meant to praise him in his name for his hard work? We don't know. But Onesimus had run away. It was a capital offense to do so. But he had hoped to make it to Rome and get lost in the chaos of that big city. But God had other ideas. He introduced him somehow to Paul. And in their conversations, Onesimus became a Christian. And Paul, never missing an opportunity, sent Onesimus back to his owner, Philemon. Wouldn't you have liked to listen in on that conversation as Paul and Onesimus talked about Paul's plan? I would have loved to be there to hear, to see, to watch the expression on Onesimus' face as Paul suggested that he carry this letter back to his owner. He did not know what awaited him. Philemon would have been within his rights to have him executed. But that letter is the eyewitness account of Paul's vision for God's new society in Jesus Christ. He writes to Philemon in one of the most marvelous examples of persuasive speech. I am sending Onesimus back to you, no longer a slave, but now your brother, Philemon, in Jesus Christ. It makes you want to weep. Well, what did Philemon do? Well, do you think we would have this letter if he didn't follow Paul's instructions? And Onesimus, Onesimus went on to become a bishop in, of all places, Ephesus. Husbands, are you loving your wife, wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself 
up for her. Fathers, are you setting a godly example for your children? They need to see that a vital relationship with Jesus Christ is not just the role of the mother in the house. And for those of you in authority over others, not as a master to a slave, but nonetheless as one in authority, remember that you too are under authority, as all of us are. May God help the church to be the church to his glory. Amen.